Hey everybody, welcome to ARE Live. Uh, I'm Mark Tier, the founder of Black Spectacles, and today we'll be covering uh, programming and analysis. Uh, using a mock exam, we're going to cover several topics uh, in this division of ARE 5.0. Uh, and so, uh, you know, Mike has put together, uh, we were just talking about it a few minutes ago, you know, five or six uh, good questions are going to cover a, a couple of the key topics in this exam. Um, so when you walk away, you should have, you know, uh, a good sense of some of the things that are going to be on the exam, some of the topics. Um, at our next ARE Live broadcast, we're going to discuss project planning and design uh, with Mike. And we'll once again use a mock exam to cover uh, some of the issues related uh, to that exam, uh, relating to, um, you know, evaluating design alternatives um, and a variety of other issues. Uh, so definitely register for that if you go to our, uh, our website um, if you look up podcasts, um, I believe there's a, a link up there right now. You can register for that guy. Um, a couple of updates to our products. So you may have heard that Black Spectacles is the first ever NCARB approved test prep provider for all six of the exams. And that approval applies to all of our study materials, which include video lectures, practice exams, and flashcards. Um, I often will, will remind folks about our group coaching program, which is really good for folks who are looking for support and structure while studying. Um, you can actually go to our group coaching uh, website uh, and sign up for one of the wait lists for our 2020 uh, sessions. I believe uh, the one, uh, I think we just closed the one that starts in December, but we have one starting in, in February. Uh, so you can actually sign up for that wait list and then you'll be notified when registration opens. And as I always like to tell people, if you'd like your boss to pay for your Black Spectacles membership, be sure to tell them about our firm licenses for firms of any size, whether you're 10 or 10,000 people, uh, we have all kinds of options. Uh, you can visit blackspectacles.com slash firms to learn more about those. Um, and I just dropped a link um, to register for that. Um, uh, actually, we uh, for the demo, we often do a demo. Um, and so one of the things that uh, we'd like to invite people, if they want to learn more about how that works, um, and, and get a demo of that. Uh, you, can, you can choose to register for that, and uh, we just dropped a link uh, for that in the chat box. Lastly, we have a special discount on Black Spectacles individual memberships, uh, so we'll provide a coupon code for that at the end of the show. Um, and then, one of the fun things about today is that uh, for those of you listening live, we'll be tracking your answers, and everyone who gets all the questions right will get a free Black Spectacles t-shirt, um, so stay tuned for that. Um, hopefully we'll give away, I don't know, I wonder what the high mark is for how many t-shirts we've given out. It's probably like 10? Uh, no, we gave out like uh, 20 some once. So? Yeah, like a 21 or something like that. <laughs> awesome. Yeah. Cool. Um, okay, cool. So uh, anyways, we'll be doing that. Um, and of course, that's Mr. Mike Newman. If you don't know Mike, he's a senior lecturer at the School of the Art Institute of Chicago, as well as the founder of Shed Studio. And he is uh, our instructor for Black Spectacles online ARE exam prep lectures. Uh, so thanks for uh, joining us today to Mike, uh, Mr. Mike. Uh, and as always, today we'll be taking uh, your questions using the GoToWebinar question box. Uh, and so with that, I'll hand it over to you, Mike. Okay. So as Mark said, we're going to be talking about programming and analysis. And a kind of quick background to this, I mean, I'm sure everybody knows already, but just to kind of start the conversation off, uh, the programming analysis is essentially before any design work happens. It touches on the kind of early design work you might do, kind of early schematic design, that kind of thing. But mostly it's about the research phase. It's about the, the period where you're setting up the contracts with the clients. It's about uh, kind of all of that stuff that we used to refer to as pre-design uh, back in the old days of the old exam. Uh, but uh, but now they're referring to it as the programming and analysis. So it's all of those analysis issues. Uh, what does the site look like? What is the zoning like? What is the financial uh, milieu like? What is the context like? What's the relationship to the owner? What's the uh, therefore what's the contract like? Uh, what's the project delivery method? It's all that stuff that you're setting up for the future of the project and you're about to get in to the main sort of design thrust of the project. Uh, so let's just jump in. These questions um, are, are meant really just to sort of kind of touch on a couple of different topic areas uh, so that uh, you can kind of see the kinds of things that we're talking about and have a little bit of an opportunity to kind of talk about them uh, kind of a, around uh, the various issues. So we'll try to touch on a few extra little bits and pieces uh, as we go along. And a quick reminder, especially for those that don't win the t-shirt, 
Um, this is me just writing up some questions to kind of be able to get across a certain set of conversations. Uh, these are not perfect questions by any means. So uh, if it's my fault that you didn't get the t-shirt, uh, I take full responsibility. <laughs> so sorry about that. I'm sure you have like okay. six or seven of them or something. I, do, in your closet, I, I so do have a few. You guys can find them at the next right. AIA convention. Right. You can always uh, steal one from me next to AIA convention. Um, okay. So number one. Um, and uh, some are some of these questions are a little quicker and faster, and some are a little wordy. And I did that specifically because uh, I was re-looking through some of the NCARB examples, and they really range. Some of them are surprisingly wordy, um, and so I thought I would kind of mimic that on a couple of these. Um, but remember, they have to be relatively easy because you have to be able to answer them pretty quickly. Um, so, all right, number one. The client has an existing single-family house in an upscale residential neighborhood. Currently, the client drives in on a driveway from the front street and parks in an open parking pad in the rear of the site. They have expressed interest in building a freestanding garage, but on first inspection of the zoning code, you note that there is a rear setback of 40 feet. What can you suggest to your client? So possible answers we have, A, um, ask the zoning department for a change in zoning in the zoning district in order to be allowed to build in the rear setback area. Uh, B, explain that the rear setback does not allow building anything in the rear 40 feet of the property and that therefore you should look into building the garage in the side yard uh, and connecting directly to the house. C, request a community meeting to review with the neighbors to see if they would object to the client building a garage in the rear area mentioned. Uh, and D, the setback uh, restriction typically refers to primary use. A garage would be considered an accessory use and therefore could be built in the rear setback. So a couple of things, let's run through uh, some, of these, some of these issues. Uh, first of all, everybody understands the concept of the setback. Uh, if I have a, a property um, and that, uh, oh, let's see here, whoa. Okay, well, I'm not going to draw it. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm making something disappear here. It's back now. All right, we're just going to go without drawing it. Um, if I have a property uh, pretty much anywhere in the country, zoning codes can be slightly different. Um, so there won't be anything overly specific about zoning codes uh, on the exam, but there are certain things that are pretty much true across the board. Uh, one of them is the concept of districts. So the districts is going to be a, a way to define different parts of the of uh, the city. You have residential districts and business business districts and commercial districts and et cetera, et cetera. And each of those will have a set of different uh, rules and regulations about them. And one of those sets of rules and regulations is going to be the setbacks. Uh, and so a uh, place that uh, is really residential focused is likely to have a rear yard setback of a certain number of feet. It might be 20, 30, 40, 70 feet, depends on the kind of scale of the neighborhood and, and different things going on. Uh, it's also likely to have side yard setbacks. And the side yard setbacks uh, sometimes will be a, a couple of feet, sometimes will be five feet, uh, things like that, especially in a residential neighborhood. Um, and the side yard setbacks make sure that there's uh, air able to get and light able to get to all the windows that come up um, so that all of these uh, different houses in the residential setting can have uh, a ease of um, kind of that light and vent happening. Um, and uh, so the side yard setbacks have this very specific kind of uh, quality to them. If we were in a commercial district, if there was some uh, some you know kind of business kind of area that we we're talking about, like a, a place where there's a lot of storefronts or something like that, it's very unlikely that you would have a side yard setback. The 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 likelihood that they would force you to have an open space between uh, stores that front to a sidewalk would be pretty unlikely. So you can see how the concept of the setbacks is there to reinforce the different ideas of the different uh, neighborhood districts. Uh, similarly, if I have a front yard setback, almost always if it's a zero front yard setback, that means that's a commercial district. That's a that's a big commercial district. So storefronts will want to be right on the on the sidewalk. Uh, 
larger buildings that uh, maybe multi-story, multi-family kinds of structures, those may want to be right on this on that uh, side sidewalk, that zero setback. But single-family houses are much more likely to be sort of required to be set back away from the street, and it sets a tone. It has a place for kids to play. It uh, gives you the sort of sensibility. So the zoning codes are these weird devices because what they're doing, the point of what they're doing is trying to reinforce an idea about how uh, buildings should work in a specific neighborhood. So you want uh, family oriented, well then you're gonna have certain kinds of setbacks and certain kinds of scale limitations. Uh, you want uh, to increase the excitement of a, a commercial neighborhood, well then I'm gonna have a zero setback and I'm gonna have everything right cheek to jowl, right? The way that this gets expressed is through this zoning code and through the setbacks. So it's kind of funny, right? Because the setbacks are these like very weird, like simple little, okay, you have to set the building back 40 feet or two feet from the side. So it's these very strange little, like why that number thing. But what they're doing is they're setting up this sort of very uh, kind of uh, sense of how the neighborhood works, right? So it's this very evocative quality that's playing out through these very straightforward numbers. So back to the answers here. Uh, let's look at answer C, request a community meeting to review with neighbors. Yeah, great idea, always a good idea to have the community on your side. That's not really a plausible answer in this context though. So I'm gonna say no to C. Uh, how about uh, uh, ask the zoning department for a change in zoning in, in the zoning district in order to be allowed to build in the rear setback area? That's certainly a possible answer. My guess is it's probably a little over the top uh, because it's just a big deal to ask for a change in the zoning district. But, you know, maybe that might be one of the possibilities. So let's look at B. Explain that the rear setback does not allow building in the rear 40 feet, and then suggest that the building, putting the garage in the side yard. That's also sort of plausible, um, depending, you'd have to know more about the site really to be able to say if that's a, a good idea or not. We don't have any more information about the site, so it's a little hard to, to know, but it's uh, sort of plausible. So A and B, kind of plausible. Let's take a look at D. D, the setback restriction typically refers to the primary use uh, a garage would be considered an accessory use and therefore could be built in the rear setback. Yeah, this is one of those tricky things about how the codes work, especially the zoning code. When it says you can't build anything in the side yard or in the front yard or in the rear yard, uh, there's actually quite a lot that you can build in those places and those are accessory aspects to the primary use. So uh, in most situations, you're not gonna want, uh, you're not gonna be able to build say, uh, and this is a single family house, I couldn't build another single family house in the rear yard uh, because that would be uh, conflicting with the primary use. I'd be building, I'd have two primary uses uh, and one of them would be in the restricted area. But the garage is considered accessory. It's helping the, uh, that primary use. Same thing with like a, maybe a pergola or a deck or something along those lines. There may be other restrictions about where you can place those for fire restrictions or uh, certain height restrictions, other things like that. But elements that are accessory to the primary use uh, are not necessarily restricted from the setbacks. So all of that to say, uh, the point of the, of the zoning code, the point of the setbacks is for the, the government to be able to have an opinion about how different neighborhoods should feel. And then your job is to sort of find a way to work the desire of the client into uh, that understanding. Uh, if you can't do any of those things uh, at all, then you would go back to A and say, we need to get the zoning changed. And then you could have a, a discussion slash argument with the zoning department about whether that's a good idea. And they could say yes or no. But right off the bat, I'm going to say that D is the answer because that's the sort of best, clearest understanding of the situation, which is this difference between primary use and accessory use. Again, remember, not all zoning codes are going to be the same across the country, but you get the idea of what they're looking for in these kinds of situations. Okay, I guess that knocked out half of the people who submitted. Yeah, that's a little bit of a weird one. Let's try number two. A new client is considering hiring you for, the, for their new indoor soccer center for kids, teams, leagues, and parties to be located in an existing unused warehouse building. 
they have contracted you to help them with a feasibility study first, what should the architect study first? Uh, so one of the things you'll find when you uh, get questions like this is that all of the potential answers uh, are in fact potential answers. Every once in a while something will be clearly not accurate and you can just throw it away. But almost all of the things will have some relationship to reality and the question is not which is uh, the right answer, which is, which is the best right answer. Um, and this is an example of that. So we have an existing warehouse, they're gonna put uh, kids soccer league uh, kind of indoor use inside of it. Uh, and they, before they do anything, they've asked you to look into it uh, to help them do a feasibility study. The answers we have here are PUD, stormwater control system, catchment area, list of possible general contractors. Uh, <coughs> excuse me. PUD refers to a planned unit development. Uh, that's a situation where uh, if there's a zoning situation where your client wants to do, say, let's say it's an old manufacturing district uh, and you want to put in a whole bunch of uh, townhomes or single family houses or something that's completely different and doesn't fit to the current zoning. Uh, the zoning department may have reasons to want to keep it to the current zoning and may say no, but one of the things you can do is you can write your own code where you say, all right, here's the zoning code we think makes sense for this. You present it to the zoning department. They look at it. They say, hey, we think this is a great idea. We don't think the manufacturing is coming back to that spot. So we think that we, we like this idea. We're going to back you. And then we will take it to the town council, city council, whatever governing body would then adopt it. Uh, they then vote on it. You might have to make presentations and do various things. They would vote on it, and if it goes through, uh, then you have effectively changed the zoning code for that location. So the PUD is a way of making the zoning code match to your client's desires, but it has to go through an extensive process. The architect would be involved, lawyers would be involved, zoning specialists would be involved. So PUD is an interesting possibility. The idea of changing the use of these old manufacturing buildings uh, and um, putting in this new use in, it's not a terrible thought to think that PUD might be part of that as a process, uh, but it's a little unlikely that the PUD process itself would be actually used and it's a little premature uh, during the feasibility study uh, to jump into it. So I'm gonna say no to the PUD. Uh, stormwater control system. Stormwater control system is uh, certainly going to be something uh, that comes up early and is important really everywhere around the country at this point. Flooding is a huge deal all over the place. The codes are all over it. Uh, and it would be certainly part of a feasibility, like, it, you know, is this building viable? Um, but it, uh, it's not really a governing distinction. There are ways to deal with it. So uh, it's a possible answer, but it doesn't seem like a great answer to me. I'm going to skip to uh, D, the list of possible general contractors. Um, another thing that might well be an interesting thing to think about, um, like it's not necessarily a bad idea to start thinking about who the possible people are that could work, but that's not truly a feasibility issue. It might be sort of a question of, are there people around who can do the work? Do we have to bring people in from some other location? Uh, but it's, it's a little bit of a stretch. So then leaves us with C, catchment area. And this is one of those spots where, um, if you haven't heard this term used in this way, uh, this is why I'm bringing it up effectively, because the catchment is a terminology that gets used in uh, on the ARE, gets used in the guidebooks, it's used quite a bit. It's a very simple concept, but uh, if it's not part of your normal parlance, you know, you, it, it would be hard for you to know exactly what they mean. So catchment comes from the idea of like water control. So if you think of a catch basin, uh, like say a catch basin in a parking lot, there'll be a certain portion of the parking lot that drains to that catch basin, right? Uh, maybe there's a little mound and then the part on the other side of that mound drains to a different catch basin, right? So there's an area that drains to this one catch basin. That's called the catchment. So if it rains and it rains on that area, 
you know where that rainwater is going to go. That rainwater is going to go to that catch basin. Uh, and then from there, wherever it's going to go from there. So that terminology gets used for when you're doing feasibility studies. Uh, if they're going to do something, well, let's use a different example. Let's say uh, a corner store. You're going to put in a little, uh, little corner store. And before you do it, you might think, well, are there any people around who will go to this corner store? And I would think about what's the catchment of the area for the people who are going to go use this corner store. So, like, how far will people walk to go to a corner store? I don't know. What do you think? Uh, four blocks, five blocks, something like that. That seems kind of far to me, but maybe let's say four or I'm five sure blocks. I'm sure both my wife and children would complain. Yeah, yeah, bitterly if I to, to have to walk really? five blocks. Really? really I got to go five blocks? Um, <laughs> but let's say that, you, that let's say it's five blocks. And then if you did an aerial view and you looked and uh, there weren't any housing, wasn't any housing uh, in that five block area. Maybe there's only uh, 40 houses there. Well, 40 houses in the five block catchment area, like that's just not believable as enough people to support that, that store. So your feasibility study would be saying, we studied the, the catchment area and there's just not enough people to support the store. Uh, you know, you could imagine if you're talking about a, a shopping mall or something like that, or a big box store or something, the catchment area might not be a circle. Like it might, it might be along the lane of a highway or something where people would be willing to drive, you know, from ten miles away uh, to come. But they're going to be willing to drive that ten miles only if they, that's a fast road that's going to get them there. They're not going to drive ten miles through backwoods. You know, like there's going to be uh, the the shape will be different, but it's still a catchment area, right? It's still a way of thinking about where are the people going to come from. And before any real project is done, if it's a simple project, the, the, the study of the catchment area might be just a couple of people standing on the site saying, hey, I wonder if people would come to this. Yeah, it looks like it would work. You know, that would be a study of a catchment area. But for a more complicated thing, it might be that you would literally take a look. How many kids are in this neighborhood? Uh, will people drive to this? You do a study whether uh, parents are willing to drive their kids to these things. If they are, that how far of a distance will people drive? Therefore, where is the area that folks would come uh, for their kids to go to this particular place? And are there enough kids to make this a viable experience? So that's what a fee is this feasible? That's what a feasibility study is. Does it make sense? So this is exactly the kind of thing. There's a bound to be a bunch of questions, not necessarily like exactly like this, but questions that are about that research phase um, and is this even a viable project, right? And that it's not really the architect's role to figure out whether it's a viable project, but often you are there to help the owner, help the client in making that evaluation. So in this case, that terminology catchment area, uh, it's just used a lot in this, on this exam, so it's worth noting. All right, sweet. We're down to 47, folks. All right, here we go. <coughs> Number three, a new 10-story high-rise spec tenant office building is being planned. Which of the following is a likely building efficiency ratio for this structure? So the building efficiency ratio is uh, the, the idea that, you know, there's a number of different square footages that get involved. Uh, in fact, one of the things, let me just say quick aside, um, I always hate it when people ask me a question about like, well, what's the square footage? Because then I have to always go into the like, oh, here we go. Uh, what square footage do you mean? Do you mean the gross square footage, which would be the overall square footage? Do you mean the rentable net square footage? Uh, even rentable net square footage, there's like three different versions. There's like a New York version and a Boston version and I think an LA version. Uh, one goes to the window line, one goes to the paint line, things like that. If it's a condo, then uh, everything is uh, that's the outside wall is not part of the condo. From the paint in is part of the condo, right? So the, just the simple idea of, well, what's the square footage is actually weirdly complicated. So just a little heads up about that. But then this question is about relating two of those different issues. And one of them is the gross square footage, which is the overall, 
uh, how how much area does the does the whole building how much, what each floor all added up how much area is the overall including everything thickness of walls columns stairs uh, telephone rooms you know whatever um, utility spaces uh, including all of it and then comparing that to the net area which is the area that's actually usable by uh, tenants um, this is a spec office building so what that means is they're going to want to have it be a reasonably efficient uh, um, uh, building efficiency ratio uh, so the areas that aren't part of the uh, net in this case well it's going to be the elevators it's going to be the columns for the building it's going to be the corridor the sort of circulation that's outside of a tenant space uh, it's going to be uh, any of the building utility spaces but not necessarily the utility spaces within a tenant space that's probably part of their net space depends a little bit on the contracts but um, so a typical building spec kind of high-rise building is going to be anywhere from the kind of high 60s up to about 80, 80 something, 82, something like that. So 75 is a very good answer. Um, 25 would be way too low of a efficiency uh, and completely like you are never working for these people again. Um, uh, uh, the, the only place you would see something like 25 is if it's like a, it's more of a, like it's meant to be a symbol of something and not an actually usable space. So every once in a while you'll see like a flagship store or something like that where it's super inefficient, but it doesn't really matter. What it's there for is to, for people to take selfies and put it, put it on Instagram or whatever. And then like that's its job. And so then it can be less than efficient. But even that you wouldn't be doing a 25% efficiency. 50% efficiency is actually plausible in certain scenarios. You might see an efficiency rating for like a hospital of like 60%, 50%, but that's because the corridors are very different and they're used differently. And so it has a very specific set of, uh, of understandings about the idea of efficiency. 99%, uh, well, uh, wow, that would be impressive. If you could make a building uh, efficiency ratio of 99%, that means essentially every single aspect is rentable. Uh, which would be, you, your client would love you, but it's hard to imagine. You can do that with air columns, right? Yeah, air columns, yeah, magnet, magnets, uh, electromagnet uh, structural systems. Yeah, uh, No problem. So 75 is just sort of a good kind of simple, plausible answer, and it's the only one out of the bunch that's uh, really doable. Okay. 42. Number four. Park District has hired you for a new environmental center in a beautiful and environmentally sensitive remote area of the park. They have supplied a survey, a wetland watershed information, uh, and general topographic information. To make initial recommendations for the preliminary analysis of the site, what other information should the client provide? So key thing here that I'm going to point out is should the client provide? Um, this is one of those uh, special aspects to uh, uh, this sort of early phases of uh, this before you get into the design. Uh, it's important to kind of remember what everybody's roles are. And the client, when you're signing a contract with the client, uh, in order for you to be able to understand what the actual project that you're signing onto is, they need to give you a bunch of information. And one of the things they need to give you is a survey because that's the legal description of the site. And it shows that they understand the, the reach that they have, the place that they can work, and it gives you a, the realm in which you're going to be doing your work. Along with that, they would also be giving you information about the program, which isn't mentioned here, but could have been. Um, because if you can't, if you don't have the program from the client, how do you know what you're designing? How are you going to be able to give them a, a reasonable fee if you don't have a very clear program? And the program is this especially weird one because most architects, most young architects, when they go into this as a in the first couple of projects, sort of assume that they write the program. 
but in fact, the program should be written prior to the contract and that that's in fact how you can make a contract because you know what the client wants and therefore you can give them uh, a price. There are other possible contracts where that's different. Uh, the client can hire you specifically either as an ad uh, in the exist in the standard contract uh, to do the program or they can contract with you separately uh, to do a program. Uh, so that you often are involved, but technically that's something that the client brings to the architect. So the survey and the program, uh, and then the other important thing that they bring is the geotechnical reports. So the answer here is going to be A, geotechnical reports. Now that sounds weird because it sounds like a very detailed kind of aspect. Like, isn't that just part of the structure? Like, shouldn't that be, you should be thinking about that down the road. But if you're thinking about the feasibility of a project and the kind of how it's going to get placed onto the site and uh, the sort of early kinds of, uh, you know, first analysis kinds of issues, um, I would be very interested in uh, the uh, topographic information, uh, which would be presumably part of the survey. It doesn't have to be part of the survey, but obviously you would get it uh, in this kind of situation to be done as part of the survey or by surveyors. Uh, I'd be very interested in the topographic information, and I'd also be very interested in, like, where is the good soil that I can build on? Uh, is there any good soil that I can build on? Do I have to reach down to bedrock before I can put any reasonable size building? If I have to reach all the way down to bedrock, this may not be the best spot for a very uh, environmentally sensitive place, right? So it's this kind of geotechnical soils information that the client typically would also be giving the architect uh, early in the process as part of uh, that you know kind of first run of information when you're first signing a contract, uh, along with the survey, along with uh, the uh, program, and along with any environmental reports if there's uh, anything like uh, toxic materials or asbestos or lead paint or anything like that, that's also something that they should be giving to the architect. And then the architect, their job is to take that information and come up with a design intent, which is about ideas, it's about design, it's about working within these legal restrictions and these pieces of information about the site that the owner has given the architect. So the owner is giving the architect the site and the, the sort of legal idea of the site, uh, and then the architect is coming up with a design intent that understands that those sets of legal restrictions and creates a design idea, a design intent that can then be built by somebody else. And that somebody else would be the general contractor and their job is the means and methods to actually build it. So everybody has these different roles and you'll see on these kinds of questions them wanting to reinforce that you understand the different roles that all these different players have. I'm talking about here, uh, all of my examples are, uh, until the next one, um, are all pretty straightforward. Um, design, bid, build, which is the sort of standard way that these things are done. And if it's not really mentioned, then project delivery, you should assume, would be design, bid, build. But there are other ways to do it. You could be doing a design build. You could be doing a, a, a multiple prime. You could be doing integrated project delivery. There's a bunch of other ways these things can be done. Um, and so it's uh, important that you, uh, if there's anything in the question that takes you to a different uh, project delivery method, make sure you're using that system of analysis uh, because it's a different set of contracts, it's a different set of relationships. Uh, everything, you know, if you are acting as the developer and the architect, well, then this whole conversation is quite different. But for a standard design, bid, build, uh, this uh, would be the logical answer. A couple of little quick responses to these other ones the addenda list. The addenda list wouldn't happen until we actually were bidding out, and so we're too early in the process. We would we would have to be well into the construction documents before we would even get close to an addenda list. The meeting schedule would certainly be an important thing to, to know about, but it's not a it's not a driver, right? It's the it's just the process of kind of how you're putting these things together. Um, and feasibility study is also a good answer, but it's not. Uh, 
uh, necessary, um, especially in a situation like this where uh, it's harder to understand what the feasibility would be of an environmental center in a remote portion of a of a, a existing park. Clearly, the park district would be having a, a reason to do this uh, that may not be about efficiency. Um, and so, feasibility study just doesn't seem quite right. But geotechnical, that's going to be immediately right on the front burner. Uh, and uh, absolutely something that the client should provide. All right, looking good. We got uh, 38 people going into the last question. Rocket. <clears throat> okay, number five. Um, uh, and remember, again, this one, uh, uh, let me just say, uh, this is sort of to make a point. Um, so uh, if I lose a couple of you, apologies. Um, this is not a complicated uh, question, but you do have to know what the term fast track means. So project delivery, like I was just talking about with uh, design, bid, build, the concept of project delivery is this idea that uh, you have to, before you can start designing, before you can really even make the, the contract with, between a client and, a, and an architect, uh, bef before anything can happen, you have to have a conversation about what's the manner in which it's going to happen. Uh, are there going to be construction managers involved? Is, uh, is it going to be a typical design bid build? Uh, is this really about design build and the architect and the builder are one entity, even if they are actually two different companies, but in this context they can act as one entity um, by having a contract with each other and therefore only one contract to the, uh, to the client? Right, that set of different project deliveries changes everything. It's a different set of contracts, it's a different timeline, uh, it's a different set of liabilities. Uh, and so it's really important that the beginning pro of a project during the programming and analysis phase, for example, the beginning of a project that you've got uh, a clear understanding of what the delivery method, the project delivery method is going to be, because it, it literally alters every single thing. So fast track, what's fast track? Well, fast track is um, essentially, I always describe it as the stupidest of the project delivery methods. It's like just incredibly dumb. Like there's, it's such a crazy, ridiculous idea. So what happens with, with the fast track? Uh, you as the designer, you're uh, drawing out, you're developing what the uh, foundation system's gonna look like. And as soon as you have developed that, you hand those uh, drawings over and the contractors uh, start, to, maybe there's a bidding phase, but essentially you hand it over to a contractor and they start excavating and putting in the foundation. And then while they're doing that, you're figuring out, well, what's the overall structural uh, skeleton of the building gonna be, the steel or concrete uh, skeleton of the building? And so you're figuring that out, you're drawing all that out, and once you're done, you hand that over. And now uh, maybe there's a bid set, maybe it's, maybe not, but you're handing it over and somebody's gonna start taking that and presumably the foundation's done and they're gonna start building the uh, skeleton right on top of that brand new foundation. And while they're doing that, you're doing the skin of the building and you're kind of going, well, et cetera, et cetera. And you're doing it in these different packages. Uh, and the idea is that you're designing while they're building. And the reason I call this the stupidest possible uh, project delivery method is, well, obviously there's gonna be problems. You can't really foresee all of the spots where, you know, in, in three months, you're going to decide, oh, it'd be great to put a bathroom over here. I guess we should have put plumbing uh, down below the slab underneath that area, right? Um, so the only way you're going to put that bathroom in is by going in and cutting that slab and putting that uh, underneath the already built area. Obviously, this creates a lot of expensive fixes uh, to the problem. So why on earth would anybody ever use fast track project delivery? Uh, and the obvious answer is, well, yeah, it may be stupid and you may be uh, spending a bunch of extra money, but uh, maybe it's worth it. So where could it possibly be worth it? Well, uh, let's say I've got a hard start. You know, we've got, for whatever reason, the project doesn't start until, you know, uh, January and it has to be done by the following January. It's like, well... If it has to be done, then maybe you gotta assume you're gonna lose a little money on fixes because you gotta get going. And so if it has a hard timeline, that's gonna be one of the places where uh, fast track becomes quite plausible and happens actually pretty regularly. 
Another example of where it happens quite a bit, uh, it may be, let's say, let's say you're doing a, um, a high rise or something and you have a very expensive lot and you have uh, carrying loans of you know, millions and millions of dollars uh, and you can uh, cut off, let's say one year, like 12 months of time off of your project if you do it fast track. Uh, and the process of doing fast track, you sort of assume, all right, we're going to spend $300,000 on fixing mistakes. It's like, oh my God, I can't believe we're going to spend $300,000 fixing mistakes. But by saving the 12 months, maybe we save $600,000 in bank loan costs. Like that's $300,000 well spent. We've just saved uh, 300 grand by doing that. So even though it's crazy, there are situations where it makes sense. Um, the reason I use Fast Track as an example, um, really the likelihood in your career, some percentage of you will come across, like I said, there are a bunch of Fast Track in, in specific situations, but most of the time you're gonna be doing design, bid, build, uh, construction managers, uh, multiple prime. Uh, there's, a, there's a bunch of, of project deliveries that are more likely but Fast Track is a great one to ask questions about, which is why I put it on here because you should definitely know because it's an easy one uh, because it has such dramatic aspects to it that you can easily ask uh, questions about it. So let's run through them. Um, single family house, yeah, that's, you know, I could imagine a situation where I'm fast tracking it, but it just doesn't make any sense. The, the timeline, all of that, it's just not uh, uh, particularly uh, important. Another one that I'm going to quickly take off is going to be the uh, public library in a small town. Really, you're going to tell the administrators of the small town government uh, that, yeah, we may spend an extra 300000 but we'll get it done fast. Like, they're not going to care about it being that fast. It's just not appropriate for that kind of uh, construction. So those two, uh, scale-wise, it just uh, isn't, uh, isn't plausible. And then the other one that I'm going to say really isn't plausible, um, and this is maybe a little bit insider baseball, but uh, a 16-unit affordable housing project in a suburban area Again, it's just not likely that the speed of the project is going to be such a big concern that you would uh, be uh, so uh, interested uh, in, uh, in pushing that speed that you're willing to go and do this sort of crazy fast track thing. Now, having said that, there are probably some listeners that are uh, in California and in California, you may be having a very different conversation because affordable housing is such a crazy situation there uh, and uh, looking for ways to get it done as fast as possible. Plus, a lot of the suburban areas are actually uh, pretty wealthy at this point and have a lot of money. So there may be parts of the country where that, that one doesn't fit right, um, but generally across the country, an affordable housing project in a suburban area, just it's just not gonna be fast-tracked. So why the other three? Uh, so be a high school in an urban area. Imagine you're running a high school, you're running a school district and the school is, has to be uh, done uh, before a certain time when uh, the folks are gonna be coming in. It's like what you're gonna find somewhere to house them for three months before the project gets done. It's a huge deal for the high school not to get done on time. Uh, it makes, it's a big cost, it's a big problem because the timelines are so key and important. So you'll often find in school construction, fast track, uh, at least partial fast track gets used. Uh, C is essentially what I just referred to, which is uh, in a very expensive area uh, in a downtown. That means the carrying costs, the bridge loans, all of those things are incredibly expensive and saving time. It may well make sense uh, to get that rolling and you actually often will see a kind of separate uh, package contract for the excavation and foundation uh, uh, before the, the rest of the design is actually fully finished. Uh, even if it's not all fast track, it's often at least partially fast track. And then for timeline reasons, again, uh, stadium for a professional football team, uh, you know, you can't just say, oh, sorry, we won't uh, be able to have any games here for two months. Uh, like, you got to get it done, right? And so that's a place where fast track is likely to show up. So B, C, and F. All right, here. <clears throat> Just looking here for a couple of questions. I think Felipe has an interesting question here. 
Uh, I just lost his question. It went away so fast. Um, but I think his question was about um, actually about exam strategy, mm-hmm. uh, talking about this exam in particular, um, and whether you know this is sort of the beginning of the design process. Any thoughts on uh, whether this is the one that makes the most sense to take first? I don't know if you have any opinions about that right now. Yeah, so um, you know, back in the day when, when uh, under 4.0 and 3.1 and all that before, when everything was siloed and you had like a structures exam and a site planning exam and a et cetera, et cetera, all these separate topics, there was a huge amount of crossover, of course, but still they were focused on separate topics. I actually thought that having a strategy about which exam to take first and second was was really useful and important um, and made a lot of sense. To be perfectly honest, in the way that they've structured uh, 5.0, I actually don't think it matters all that much. And um, if it was me, I'd probably just do it in the order, the, do the, the first two, the project and, and practice management, and then I'd start uh, with this one and just run through them in order. Um, and I think I would do that because I think it, it allows you to sort of keep everything straight in your head uh, about like where you are in the process. The key thing um, about that on these exams, the way 5.0 is done, is that you have to remember that you, the, the questions will often have answers in them that are reasonable answers and maybe even the correct answer to the question if it was one of the other exams. So, like, for example, uh, you know, the PUD we had earlier uh, in this, that it's just too early to have that uh, at this point. There, there would have to be a lot more work done before that PUD would be a reasonable answer. Um, there's, a, there's a bunch of things um, that can be correct, uh, but not in this moment of the timeline of the project. And so, to me, I would just keep it as simple as possible and go from from one to six. However, I think if you've got a, a game plan that you think is like maybe you've done a lot of construction experience, uh, where you've been working for a firm on a site, um, and and uh, you you have a lot of experience with that, well, maybe you want to start with that one because that'll give you a lot of confidence and you feel like you know a lot about it, and it kind of gets you in. You know, great. That's a great way to to make a decision. But um, it's just not like, you know, when you talk to everybody in your office, they're all going to have these really strong opinions. But most of those folks probably did it under 4.0 or 3.1 or something. And it's just a different ball game under 5. And I just don't think it, I wouldn't over fret about it. Yeah. The only thing that uh, we've observed from some of the folks, especially in the coaching program, um, as a, maybe a second idea for, uh, for a strategy is since PPD and PDD are oh, yeah. so dense... Yeah. Um, and generally require a little more time. And they certainly, like, the content is very, uh, uh, oh, there's a lot of overlap. There's a huge the amount of overlap, yeah. Some folks are actually taking those two exams last yeah. um, and actually taking construction and evaluation yeah, as I number sh- four. I actually think that's a great, that's a great idea because um, uh, the other thing is that those two big ones, like, it, once you've taken all of the other ones, you're essentially prepping yourself for the two big ones. Um, so I can totally imagine it. So that, all that really is, though, is sliding the, the right. last one uh, into the, um, uh, what's that, fourth, uh, yeah, yeah, fourth spot. Um, so that, I think that's a great, uh, a great sort of twist to it that would make a lot of sense. And those two big ones are enormous, yeah. right? This one's pretty small and handleable, and the topic areas are pretty uh, constrained, um, but the, those two big ones are enormous. Mayosh has an interesting question. It says, I'm confused. Thought the fast track was a scheduling method, not a project delivery method. Um, yeah, it, so it's both. Um, and uh, the reason that it's a project delivery method, um, it's, if, this is going to be a little sideways uh, analysis, but um, clearly I'm not using standard contracts for a fast track, right? It's its own set of contracts. Uh, clearly, we have a different set of relationships between the owner, the architect, and the uh, the and the wh- whoever the contractors are. It may, in fact, be multiple contractors. It may be one contractor. Um, and what project delivery is is a, is effective. Like you could say, well, what project delivery is? It's which contracts are you using, 
right? That's a simple answer to what is project delivery. Like, well, I choose the contract and that's gonna define all of our relationships and that's how the project is being delivered. Um, so it's a weird one because it is a scheduling aspect, but also because the contracts are different, because the, the uh, flow of information is different, because the relationships uh, are all different, uh, it, it, it becomes a, a project delivery method. Okay, and then one more, again, it's a broad There may one. be some people who treat that differently. There may be some, some guidebooks that say it slightly differently, but most will say it the way I just did. Yep, um, and then lastly, uh, from Craig, uh, talking about struggling with test time and sort of managing your time during the test, says uh, it seems impossible to actually finish on time. How do you recommend going faster? And I might actually change the question and say, how would you recommend managing, managing your time better? Yeah, so a couple of important um, aspects to the time management. Um, one is, remember that there's a, a, a relatively short per question time. Um, and so you just do a quick calculation. You have you know X number of hours and X number of questions, and you can figure out, well, how many minutes do I have per question? And if you get into a situation where you're triple reading it and it's got a calculation, you're not really sure what to do and you're trying to sort of go back and forth and, and you're halfway through, you think, and you've already spent four minutes on it, like, guess and move on, right? Maybe put a star, go back to it, but uh, like, you don't have to answer every single question correctly to pass this exam. So, you know, don't overthink it. Like, if it's, if it's something you just, you know, there'll be, I always say a million questions, right? It's actually not a million questions, but there's you know a lot of questions, thousands and thousands of questions that they have in these vaults of questions that are uh, in a cloud somewhere, and you know of those questions, um, if you know any random hundred that came out and I took, you know I wouldn't get all hundred correct. Uh, there'll be a couple that are worded in some way that confuses me, or there's a topic I just don't know about for whatever reason or something like there's gonna be some on there that you just don't know. So don't kill yourself on stuff that becomes distracting. Keep rolling, keep moving. Um, you know, like if you work it out and you have, uh, I actually can't remember what the numbers are, it's different for each exam, but let's say it's two minutes per question. Uh, if you work it out and you start, do a few practice exams where you time yourself to about a minute or so. And then given the the anxiety of being in the actual exam and uh, maybe a slightly different way that they're written or something like that. Uh, you sort of give yourself a little more time than that on the actual exam. You'll have plenty, it'll, it'll work out. And if it's not working, jump on to the next one. Um, the big thing here, and I, I know this is exactly not what you were looking for, and I apologize, but the big thing here is uh, you have to try really hard not to worry about it. Um, if you are worried about it, you're going to be wasting energy. You're going to be spinning your wheels. Uh, what you want to do is just kind of roll through it and uh, have have a, a, a sense of the timing by having practiced it. Practicing is huge. Um, so you want to get used to, you know, how long does it take you? Literally time yourself on some practice, practice exams and just get a feel for it. Come up with some of the ways that you like approaching questions. Like sometimes, I know some people like to look at the answers first and then read the question because they if they feel like it allows them to focus when they look at the question. Other people find that confusing and so they don't want to do that. What do you want? Like find your system that works for you. Uh, and uh, the sort of in terms of the, the timing, you know, you just start uh, moving through it have your expectation uh, of, of how fast you should be going through. Don't look at it every question. You know, have a sense every five questions or something like that. And once you've gone through, say, 15 or 20, stop looking because you are, you are either on the pace or you're not, uh, and you don't need to keep looking. It's, it's okay. Like, you, yeah. like once, you, once you feel like you're, you're in the right track, don't, don't think about that part anymore. Just focus on the questions. The one caveat that I will say, and this is another big one that you need to decide about how you want to approach it, is with the case studies. Now, we didn't really talk about case studies today, but the quick version of that is some grouping might be 10 questions, might be 15 questions, there might be one case study, there might be two case studies. Uh, 
will be uh, there'll be those questions will be grouped together with a bunch of specific information that you have to uh, respond to for that group of questions. The other 80 questions or 60 questions or 100 questions or whatever, depending on the exam, will just be regular multiple choice, just standalone questions. And there's a really interesting question that everybody should find their own opinion about, about whether you should do the multiple choice ones first and then get to, which is I think how it's physically laid out, and then get to the case studies, do the case studies second. Um, and there's some reasons to do it that way. The other way to do it is to jump down, do the case studies first, and then go back up and do the multiple choice. And the reason this is sort of an interesting question is, like, for me, uh, my worry, if I was taking the exam now, my big worry would be if I was doing the case study first, I know that I would start reading the code. I'd start reading the, like well, all those little pieces of information that they give you. I would just be reading them because I'd begin interested and I'd start to like wonder why they have me reading this and I'd be getting all into it. Whereas if I did it last, I would have the pressure of, hey, don't get into it. You, you know, you got uh, 30 minutes left, answer the damn questions. Um, and so for me, because of my personality, it would make total sense for me to start with the multiple choice uh, and then get to the case studies when I get to them. But I've talked to a bunch of folks who actually felt exactly the opposite because they really wanted to feel comfortable, they had time to look through the material, uh, and that they felt that they could just blitz through the multiple choice if they had to. So that's a really important one to think about from a strategy standpoint and have an opinion so that when you're going into the exam, you're not thinking about it then, you already know what you're going to do. That's a great point. There's a lot of uh, great stuff there. And the other thing that we always, you and I often talk about is, remember, every single question is only worth one point. So there's no difference between yeah. the case studies. That are, you're not worth more points. Right. So if there's, a, if there's 12 questions uh, for a case study, that's 12 points total. And, you know, you're going to get a bunch of them, even if you miss yeah. a couple. And, like, it's okay. Like, you don't have to get every single one in the case study to get all, all those points. Right? So, yeah. Uh, the big, big, big takeaway is, yeah, try not to fret about it. You know, like, I know that's like, screw you, Mike. I know <laughs> is what you're saying right now. Uh, uh, but really, try not to fret about it because it's just uh, like, you're just taking the exam and hopefully it works. And frankly, if it doesn't, eh, big deal, we take it again. Thank you, Mike. And uh, thank you, everybody, for tuning in. Uh, so many questions just sort of pouring in here, uh, but unfortunately, we're at time. So, uh, so we're going to move on. So thank you, every, everyone, for tuning in. Our next ARE Live podcast, we will, again, use a mock exam to review issues related to project planning and design, one of the uh, exams we were just talking about. Um, I just posted the link to register uh, for that uh, podcast in the chat box. Um, uh, so go over to... Uh, 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 go over there, and you can log in. Uh, or you can just go to blackspectacles.com uh, slash podcast to sign up. To learn more about our ARE exam prep curriculum, uh, you can go to blackspectacles.com, where you can try out any of our course videos. And as I always like to say, if you want your boss to pay for your membership, be sure to visit blackspectacles.com slash firms. And you so, should absolutely get your boss to pay for it. Yeah. If they're not paying for your membership, I don't understand why. Um, to learn more about uh, any of our uh, firm memberships for firms of any size, uh, but if you are like many, many people who, um, whose boss isn't paying for it and you're ready to start preparing for the ARE right now, you can use coupon code PA112119PC to get a 15% discount for the entire duration of your ARE exam prep membership. Now the fun part. Um, holy smokes. Uh, we had 24 folks who got it right. <laughs> um, Told you. So let's see. Uh, these first uh, four or five here, they actually... Um, calling them out. Their firms have a firm license. So Gabriella from Smith Group, uh, Aaron from Fitzgerald & Associates, Jacqueline from SCB, uh, Jen from Buyer Lender Bell, uh, yeah. Rancelina from Rogers McCag Architects, Planners, Interior Designers. Uh, you guys will all be getting a t-shirt and thank you for being Black Spectacles members or firm members. Um, and then going down the list, Corey from Plunkert Racish Architects, M Mary from Canon Design, Molly from Greer, A from Tash, uh, Marcella from Harlan McGee, uh, Kelly from LGA, Esther from Danois. <laughs> Somebody put Z, and their firm was FA. 
So I don't know what that means, <laughs> but congratulations. Congrats, Lee, yeah. Way to go. Uh, Tanya from CUA. Christine, Leo, you didn't put a firm, so I don't know where you're from. <laughs> David Atelier, uh, Carolina from QAM, Carolyn from Newport, Angela from Angela in Zerillo. I said that wrong. Emily from ZJMZ, John, Kyle from Jones, and Hadu Jean Day from Kasha Art. That's so hard. This is the worst. I can't do this. Um, but anyways... All don't, don't we have somebody you, here who can actually handle this job? All 24 of you, you're going to get an email from <laughs> us, uh, which will set you up with a free T-shirt. So we're excited, uh, and thank you guys um, for, uh, for for following along and submitting your uh, your, your answers in advance. Um, so uh, tomorrow we're going to email everybody a follow-up about today's live broadcast. Um, so please let us know what you think. Share any suggestions you may have. Um, and in particular, I mean, if you have any uh, ideas or things you would like us to talk about, um, you'd like to learn more about, uh, put your ideas in there. Um, I promise that we read every word that you write and use them to tune our next episodes. So thanks for watching.